David. Good morning. I want to start by talking to the guys for just a minute. Guys that are dating or are married. You ever had this conversation with your spouse or your girlfriend? So what do you want for supper? I don't care, you decide. Okay, how about Taco Bueno? Oh, gross, no, that's not even Mexican food. Okay, how about Rosa's? Now, I really don't want Mexican food. Think of something else. Okay, uh, pizza? Ooh, gross. No, don't want pizza. How about Chick-fil-A? No, I had Chick-fil-A for lunch. Don't want Chick-fil-A. So you do care where we eat. Why don't you just tell me where you'd like to go? You know what? I, I'm not really all that hungry. You just pick a place, and I'll just eat a little bit of whatever you get. That kind of conversation, I would guess, goes on in every household many times a week. And what makes it even more frustrating is you're hungry, right? You just want to eat. You don't want to debate. You just want something to eat. You've seen the Snickers commercials where you have some famous celebrity and the guy, his friend, I guess, hands him a Snickers and he says, you know, here, take this. And he takes a bite and then when the camera goes back to him, he's a normal, regular person. And his friend says, better? And he says, yeah, better. And the tagline is, you're not you when you're hungry. I want to suggest to you this morning, you are you when you're hungry. You may not be the best version of you, but you are you when you're hungry. And what you hunger for and what you actually eat makes all the difference in what you become. I want to ask you this morning, what are you hungry for? And this is a question that we all need to ask ourselves every single day. Because every single day we ask that question in a physical sense, don't we? Well, what are you hungry for? What am I hungry for? What do I want to eat? But what are you hungering for most in your life when it comes to things that are spiritual? You know, there was a researcher who asked this question, who asked a number of Americans, what is it that is your top ambition in life? And here's how the majority of people responded. Being financially secure, starting my own company, having a family, owning a pet, traveling the world, owning my dream home, learning another language. You know, folks, there are others in our society who have invested everything in a pursuit of wealth or sensuality. You ever seen the show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Some of you who are a little older know that show, where the host Robin Leach would follow the most wealthiest and uh, well-to-do individuals on our planet to see how the people who live as elitists actually uh, pursued different things and wealth and stuff and how they live. You ever seen the, the television show Intervention? This is where a counselor along with a person's family confront their addiction, whether it be to drugs or alcohol. You ever seen the television show Sex in the City? Don't raise your hand. This is a show where, from what I understand, a, a New Yorker who is a journalist chronicles the mating habits of New York socialites, and her and her friends have many sexual escapades. You ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? The wise Solomon chronicles his life 
which was one pursuit after another for physical things. And in the end, he learns that it's all just a chasing after the wind, that it's meaningless, that it's fleeting, that, that none of it makes any difference in his life except in the negative. And you probably know verse 13 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. In other words, Solomon's, Solomon's wisdom prevailed. He recognized that everything he was hungering for was leaving him empty in the end. And the only thing that could truly satisfy him was a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness. And so I want to ask you this morning, what is it that you are pursuing in life? What is it that you are hungering for? What gets you up in the morning? Now, you know that I know what you know the answer to that is, right? I mean, when I ask a question like, what gets you up in the morning? What is it that you're hungering for? You know what the right answer is. But is it the true answer? In other words, just knowing the right answer doesn't mean that it's the true answer for you. If you do an honest examination of yourself, is the right answer the true answer? It's kind of like the Sunday school teacher that asked her class, what, what is furry, four-legged, gathers nuts for the winter, can climb up and down trees, and has a long, bushy tail? And nobody in the class answered. And so she pushed him, pushed him for an answer, and one little boy said, well, I want to say squirrel, but I'm going to go with Jesus. Because he thought that was the right answer. And many of us are the same way. We know what the right answer is, but is it the true answer? Are you pursuing the right things in your life? I can ask you the question, but are you answering it truthfully? Think about it this way. Think about how maybe you're kidnapped and you're locked in a room. And within the first few hours, maybe even the first 30 minutes, you know what many of you are going to be saying to yourself? Where's the internet service? We don't have Wi-Fi in here? You get locked in a room, and some of you within the first 30 minutes are going to be saying, well, where's the, where's the Xbox? Where's the video gaming system? I mean, really? There's no video gaming system? But imagine that you're locked in that room for five days. After five days, what are you thinking? You're probably not thinking about all the things you have to do on your busy schedule, right? After five days, you're probably thinking about, I need food and I need water, or I'm going to die. Consider you've been locked in this room for 10 days. Now what is your predominant thought? I've got to get out of here. If I don't get food and if I don't get water, I'm going to die. Now imagine that the door is open and you're free to go. What's the first thing you're going to do? Not try to find cell service. That's not going to be the first thing you do. The first thing you do is not going to be to try to find you know, a video gaming system. No, the first thing you're going to do is try to find something to eat and something to drink, right? You've been locked in a room for 10 days, and suddenly you're free. The first thing you're going to do is say, point me in the direction of some food and some water. You're starving. You're thirsty. And in that moment, nothing else matters. Look with me at Matthew 5 and 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, everyone wants to be happy, right? I mean, virtually everyone 
is pursuing happiness because that is the goal of life. And advertisers understand this. You turn on the television, you open up a newspaper, you listen to the radio. I mean, uh, advertisers are selling everything from blue jeans to teeth whitener and trying to sell you on the fact that if you have their product, you're going to be happy. They're not really selling blue jeans or teeth whitener. They're selling you on happiness because they understand that that's what everybody really wants out of life. You just want to be happy. I just want something that makes me happy. But what's interesting about making happiness as the goal is that so many people pursue happiness and yet they always seem to come up empty. They're never truly satisfied. They might find momentary happiness in, in, in certain things of this world, but not sustainable happiness. And that, that's because the only way to satisfy our great hunger is by pursuing something bigger than what the world has to offer. Because happiness is based on emotion and mood. It's fleeting. It's not sustainable. It's based on circumstances. If you want real blessedness in your life, the blessedness that Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes, then you're going to have to pursue something bigger than what this world has to offer. I mean, you think about someone who is suffering from some terrible disease, and they've got all the symptoms. They've got, you know, uh, uh, vomiting, high fever, acute pain, fatigue, and they go to the hospital, and the doctor comes in, and the doctor immediately gets their fever down by giving them a fever reducer. They give them a shot for the nausea and the vomiting. They give them morphine to, to get rid of the pain, and the doctor walks away and says, they're cured. I've done my job. Have they? Well, of course not. The doctor didn't do his job necessarily because he didn't treat the underlying issue. He only treated the symptoms. He got rid of the symptoms, but he didn't treat what's causing the symptoms. And all too often, this is the mindset of our culture. Someone is hurting, they want to get rid of the pain, and so they turn to drugs or to alcohol or to food or to sex or, or, or whatever it may be in order to kill the pain and to produce happiness. But the question never gets asked, what's causing the pain? What is the underlying issue? We hunger for the wrong things. When we put happiness above righteousness, we're attempting to treat the symptoms rather than seeking a cure. And Jesus says, have a different kind of appetite. Hunger for something greater. Have an appetite for righteousness. Because here's the beautiful thing about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Jesus says, when you feed your spirit with righteous things, you will be satisfied. No doubt you will be satisfied. No more hungering for happiness only to be filled for the moment and then starving again later. No, the one who pursues righteousness becomes full. And not only that, he is blessed. And to be blessed is not the same thing as being happy. I know we say that a lot of times, and some Bible versions even make that connection. Blessed, happy, it's not the same thing. Not the same thing. In the Greek language, the word that's used here in the Beatitudes is makarios, and it literally means large or lengthy. The idea behind Jesus' use of this word is that when God blesses us, he extends to us all of the benefits. He enlarges his mercy to us. He lengthens his charity in our direction. And of course, the person who has God's benevolence directed toward him is more than happy. They're blessed. And that's different. Because again, happiness is based on mood and circumstances. It's based on emotion. 
That's not what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's not saying you will be happy in a, in a physical sense in that, you know, your circumstances will improve and therefore you'll feel better. No, the term that he uses here is talking about a deep-seated blessedness that can come in even the most adverse of circumstances. You can be blessed beyond measure even though you're going through persecution, even though you're suffering, even though you're being beaten and flogged. You can still be blessed because you have something bigger than the world around you. You're pursuing something deeper. It's not about treating the symptoms. It's about having a cure. And you think about the people that are in the crowd the day that Jesus is talking about these things. Think about the audience. This is not a very promising group of people. You realize that, don't you? I mean, this is a ragtag bunch of people that Jesus is speaking to here in the Sermon on the Mount. The beginning of verse, uh, excuse me, the beginning of chapter 5 of Matthew, it says that Jesus sat down and began to teach. When a rabbi sat down and began to teach, it meant that he was going to give you the essence of his teaching. He was going to give you the heart of his teaching. Jesus is sitting down and giving the heart of God. He is giving the essence of God. And the people that were listening that day could not have been a more unpromising group of people. These are not people who had a lot in the way of material things. These are not people who could go home and turn on a tap and get cold water. These are people who lived on the brink of starvation. I mean, maybe, maybe they would get meat once a week, but very doubtful. And the working man's wage at this time was one denarius. People didn't get fat off of that. And so Jesus is speaking to people who were under the Roman government, who could be per persecuted and, and crucified with no trial, no repercussions whatsoever. Children were in the audience who could be killed and done away with without any say, without any trial, without any repercussions. And so Jesus is speaking to these folks, and they knew exactly what he was talking about when he tells them, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They knew all about hungering and thirsting. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 6, Starting in verse 24, it says, Now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my Lord, O God! He said, if the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king said to her, what is the matter with you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she, was, she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. Think about how severe a famine has to be that people are paying about $300 in our money to buy the donkey's head for what little meat was on it. Not the quarters where there was more meat, $300 for the donkey's head. 
for two quarts of dove excrement, they were paying $19 to eat it. That stuff you find on the sidewalks, on the overhangs of businesses, they were paying $19 to eat it because they were starving to death. Not only that, it gets worse. We're boiling their own children and eating their own child. How do you do that? How does someone do that? What, what goes into, what, what is going through your mind as you prepare your own son to eat? None of us here will know what that's like. We'll never endure a famine of that type of severity. But hopefully you get the point. People in this day and time, they knew about 2 Kings and what went on there. Even the people that were listening today in, 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 in that day in Jesus' audience, they, they knew what it meant to be hungry. This was not some passing or fleeting feeling where you just eat a Snickers and you're okay. No, these people were always on the brink of starvation. And it couldn't be satisfied with a, a mid-morning snack. That's not what we're talking about. This is not a genteel hunger or thirsting for righteousness. No, you picture a famine. You picture the threshing floor and the wine presses being empty. Everything is dried up. There's no food in sight. Times are desperate and you're willing to go to the extreme if need be just to have something to eat because you're going to die if you don't get it. Or you picture a traveler who's weary from a journey and a sandstorm blows up and he takes his, his, his hood, his cloak, and he puts it around him and the sand swirls and enters into his nostrils and goes down the back of his throat to the point of almost suffocating him. And he finally gets into a shelter and he, he, he takes the cloak off and, and, and his eyes are bloodshot. His lips are cracked. His nose and mouth are dried out. All he wants in that moment is something to drink. And he doesn't want Pepsi. He doesn't want milk. He wants a cup of cold water. That's the only thing in that moment that can satisfy him. As he feels the, feels the particles of, of sand and the grit between his teeth, just a cup of water, something to satisfy me because he is on the brink of dehydration and, and that thirst has to be quenched or else. That is what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about hungering and thirsting. These are not passing feelings. These are not passing desires. Hunger is something that demands our satisfaction. It hurts. It brings pangs. It's painful. It's discomfort. It is something that continues and increases in intensity, making one feel desperate. And it causes agony until it's satisfied. That's what's behind Jesus' words here in Matthew 5 and 6. Do you hunger and thirst like that for righteousness? Do you have an intense desire to be free from the power of sin? Do you crave holiness? Do you have an appetite for godliness? The righteousness that Jesus speaks of is satisfying ourselves with this word, dikaiosune, in the original language, it means integrity or uprightness or virtue or purity of life. It means correctness of thinking. It has to do with whatever has been appointed by God to be acknowledged and obeyed by man. And it's interesting because this word appears in the accusative form rather than in the normal genitive form in the Greek language. And when it appears in the accusative form, it means a hunger or a thirsting for the whole thing. Jesus very well could have said, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for all of it. All of righteousness. Every single bit of it. When it appears in the accusative, it is saying, I don't just want some bread, I want all the bread. I don't just want some water, I want all the water you have. You are hungering and thirsting for every bit of God's righteousness. Not just a little bit to make your life cleaned up and a little better. No, you want every single bit of it because you want to be as, as much like God, as much like His Son as you can possibly be, right? You want to follow on His heels. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for complete righteousness. We see in the book of Hosea, chapter 6 and verse 4, the prophet states, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. God's children had been filling up on the earthly. They had been pursuing things that were worldly, only to find themselves in desperate need of real sustenance. Their existence was this vicious cycle of prosperity followed by rebellion, which led to begging for divine intervention. They didn't have a sustained hunger or thirst. Actually, they did. They were always hungering and thirsting for the wrong things. Many times, those things led to sin. Righteousness was not their primary ambition or pursuit. And the prophet says that their, that their pursuit, their loyalty was like a morning cloud or the dew. In other words, it's here one minute and gone the next. It's fleeting. It's the type of hunger that is satisfied for the moment. It's like eating a Snickers, right? Satisfies about 30 minutes, maybe an hour. And then you're hungry again, right? God's people needed to fill up on something that would stick with them longer. And the same is true with us. We need soul food, not a spiritual snack. We should be hungry and we should be thirsty for something that is so much bigger than us. We need to be pursuing something different in life. You know, Peter said something about this in 2 Peter chapter 2. He said, for if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. I mean, what kind of dog returns to its own vomit? You know, it's funny, I, I, I talk to people who are dog people. I'm, I'm not a dog person, please don't hold that against me. But it, I think it's always funny, you know, people talk, oh, he's just so smart. Well, he's eating his own vomit, he's not that smart, right? And Peter is making a point here that you've escaped from the pollution of the world. You're no longer pursuing worldly things, and you become a child of God. You are a new creature in Christ. Why in the world do you want to go back to that? Evidently, some were leaving their new life in Christ to go back to being entangled by the world. And Peter says, that's just like a sow who cleans themselves and then goes back to wallowing in the mud. That's just like a dog who returns to its own vomit. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? If you're a new creature in Christ and you have left the pollution of the world, why do you want to go back to that? Once you've tasted soul food, why do you want to go back 
to the snacks of this world. This is a sustained pursuit. This is a continual pursuit. Everyone pursues something. Everybody. We're all going to pursue something in life. Every single one of us. Too many people are eating Snickers rather than feasting on soul food, and they're never truly satisfied. What Jesus is talking about is a sustained hunger and thirst. You are not satisfied for the moment. You are satisfied for a lifetime. And because you have made it a lifelong pursuit, you are blessed. You are satisfied. So therefore, you don't go back like a dog returns to his vomit. Or like a pig returns to wallowing in the mud. Why is it that you can go to a park and certain animals that should be wild will come up to you? You notice that? Like you go to the park and there's ducks or geese. Sometimes they'll walk right up to you, won't they? I know when my family and I go to Red River, New Mexico in the summer, there's these chipmunks. And you can sit in your chair eating something. They'll run up your leg. They'll sit on your shoulder. A normally wild animal does that. Why? Well, because they've learned you have something they want, right? They have learned that you, a human being that should pose a threat to them, or at least they think you should, you can satisfy their most basic desire. Therefore, the barrier between the two of you is knocked down. Because that desire is strong, isn't it? You ever try to coax a wild kitten, maybe, to, to, to tame it, to maybe make it a pet. And maybe it's, maybe it's underneath a barn or something like that or an outbuilding. What is, your, what is your method of operation? What do you do? Well, typically you throw some food in his direction, right? And maybe he comes out and, and he eats, all the while keeping an eye on you. You make one sudden movement, he's gone, right? But after some time, what do you do? Well, you, you throw that food a little bit closer to you. And maybe he comes out and he's still, he's still watching you very closely, but he's eating the food. And then maybe after quite some time, you hold it in your hand and the cat comes all the way up to you and eats it out of your hand. He's still skittish. He's still watching you closely. You make one sudden move and try to pet him, he's out of there. But maybe over time, after a sustained period of time, you can actually get him to eat out of your hand while you pet him or hold him. Why? Because his desire for food is so strong, that barrier gets broken down and he trusts you, right? Do you see where we're going with this? I'm not sure that it's natural for us as human beings to pursue righteousness. I'm not sure that's always natural. We tend to find it natural to pursue the things of this world, to seek the things that are of this world around us. But many of you are sitting here this morning as a beneficiary of breaking down that barrier. Instead of running away from God, you ran to God because you realized that that's who you needed most in your life and that only He could satisfy your most basic need. And so you embraced the gift of grace. 
you received it and you put on Christ in baptism and now you're doing things for the Lord that you never thought would be possible. I mean, if you would have told me 25 years ago I'd be standing up and preaching in Abilene, Texas, I would have laughed in your face. That was not my natural inclination. And many of you are doing things that, that seem unnatural because that barrier's been broken down. Broken down. Now you are close to God. Now you are seeking righteousness. You're pursuing that with all your might. And some of you sitting here this morning may not be pursuing righteousness, and, and your life is in shambles, or maybe you're dealing with difficulty. You don't have peace, and you've come to realize that maybe it's because I'm trying to find happiness in the things of this world, and it just doesn't deliver. You're realizing that you don't find happiness in an illicit relationship or through alcohol or drugs or whatever it may be. Let me tell you this, folks, and please hear me on this because this is a truth statement. And you can try to argue with me if you want to, but I can show you evidence of this being true over and over again. You will never find fulfillment without God. Ever. You might find hints of happiness. You might find little patches of fulfillment in your life here and there based on your family relationships or maybe through your job or whatever it may be, but you will never truly be satisfied apart from a relationship with God. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're one who have tried to find happiness through the shallow things of this world, I would just ask you, how is that working for you? Try doing it God's way and see what happens. Have a hunger and a thirst for something bigger. And if we can help you, let us. Come now as we stand and as we sing.